I think the biggest mistake that people make is that of this sort of starving artist notion, which we have never subscribed to. We look around and we see art is everywhere. The cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the buildings we look at, the buildings we are inside, the interior architecture, the movies we watch that are constantly changing. There's nothing that we don't participate in every single day that hasn't been touched by the hands of an artist. And those are all jobs. Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses. Hey everyone, this is Ian from Unincorporated, and I wanted to welcome you to another edition of the Higher Ed Happy Hour. Today I'm here with Dr. Elisa Stevens. Dr. Stevens is the president of the Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And under her leadership, the Academy has become one of the largest private schools of art and design in the nation. Dr. Stevens is known for her pioneering approach, blending art and design education with cutting edge technology. And she's written thought-provoking pieces on open admissions and the significance of creativity in the age of AI. And today, we look forward to exploring her insights on the future of art, design, technology, and education. Dr. Stevens, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Well, congratulations again. Let's just start off by saying congratulations again on the continued success of the Academy of Art University. I'd love to hear just a bit about your journey and how it has evolved under your leadership. Well, um, I've been a president for a long time, probably longer than most presidents, and um, we've seen a lot of change in art and design. But with the change that we've seen, we've also held true to the time-honored principles of art and design. So with change, we've also stayed the same. So I think that's been a big advantage for us to be able to hold on to the past strengths and yet stay current with technology and ever-evolving trends in art. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about the past strengths and where you've been able to honor tradition. Uh, We're going to talk quite a bit about AI and the innovations, but I'm curious on what traditions the university is holding on to. The traditions that we're focused on are the time-honored principles of drawing, design, color, structure, and form. And we've emphasized those in the beginning of the curriculum and foundational curriculum. And then we practice them throughout the curriculum for the student's journey at the Academy of Art University. So it's really important to have that foundation before moving into more of the experimentation and innovation. I think that the traditional education model is sometimes under scrutiny. So it's, um, I guess, notable that you've been able to hold on to that, but then also, you know, stay relevant and stay contemporary with your curriculum. Well, we subscribe to the notion that you have to know the rules before you break them. (laughs) That's true. That's true. I think there's the anecdote around Picasso and how he learns the many techniques of the masters before moving into his uh, cubist aesthetic and and really, um, yeah, is, is an exemplar of that exact notion. Know the rules before you can break them. Build that vocabulary before you begin 
writing your own prose. So let's talk more about um, your open admissions policy. This is something I know you're a, you're a champion of. I think it has different definitions or different inflections within higher ed. Uh, what is the open admissions policy or what is the admissions policy there at, uh, at your university? Well, we have a no barriers admissions policy and it really ensures the most diverse student population that we can strive for. We're firm believers that a student's past doesn't predict performance in school, isn't predicting their future performance at our school. And we see that students, whether high school students or even other university students, if they've gone to a traditional university, really haven't received the art education needed to create the type of portfolio one would need to get accepted into a university. I guess the best way to say it is our no barriers policy is giving everybody an opportunity to have access to higher education. Even if you come from a lower socioeconomic background, where you might not have had the education uh, and the opportunity to have computers, art supplies, art teachers, hire private art tutors like other high school students might have had or other families may have had that advantage. So we see that as very important, that the whole world benefits by giving people the opportunity to be creative. Yeah, and I'll ask about the outcomes and if that approach, the no barrier approach, affects outcomes at all. Um, But I'll hold that question for a moment because I'm curious if you have a sense of this, because a lot of our listeners, they may not be administration within art schools or liberal arts, even for that matter, they are listening possibly from, you know, STEM programs or business programs. Do you think the no barriers approach would work for other types of programs? Well, we as an art and design university have 14 STEM programs. So we combine STEM with art and come up with STEAM. And we steam power portfolios. And that's how students are hired is based on their portfolio. So they have to actually perform. Do I think a nuclear physics major uh, needs to know math? Yep, I do. And if you don't have barriers, the question becomes, wow, how do we get a qualified person? So I think the answer to that, which is which is part and parcel to the No Barriers Admissions Program, is that we have programs and services that assist our students. We have uh, academic resources where support teachers go into the classroom. Uh, if a student's English is not as strong as it may need to be, we have English for art purposes courses so that students take English for art purposes, and then that teacher goes into the art classes with that student to assist them. We have writing courses that are free. Our resource center is free. So we have free tutoring, and you have to put those services in, as well as have foundational programs. You have to support them and help them uh, be maybe be stronger in areas that you're going to need them to be in order to succeed. Yeah. Was it difficult for you to develop this policy or 
as the president, did you just say, this is the mandate and this is the direction we're going? How much buy-in did you require? And um, ultimately, what would you say to someone that might be struggling with creating a more open admissions policy for their units? Well, we've had this no barriers policy for over a hundred, almost 100 years. And my grandfather was a painter and art director for Sunset Magazine. And he started the Academy of Art University in 1929. And from its inception, he had a no barriers policy because he had seen and was realizing that many, many Americans were not receiving drawing and art education at the high school level. And even if they did have art classes, they weren't taught by artists. And so the second part of his pedagogy was to have working professional artists teach the next generation of artists, primarily because art's moving so fast that an instructor, a faculty member must be in the industry in order to convey the most relevant information to the students in an art and design school, and that that information then is built upon semester by semester with art moving so fast. So it wasn't hard to implement because it was part of the foundation of the university. It's been more difficult to explain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And how about for those who are struggling to get this across the the dean's desk or, you know, into the president's office as an initiative? I would argue that if you want a diverse population, that uh, open admissions policy is going to help you with that and that you will have a very broad range of people, both socioeconomically and in terms of their own heritage, and that that will benefit the university and that, yes, they'll have to be support systems in place, perhaps, in various subjects to assist these students, a percentage of the population that did not receive this information prior to being accepted. Mm-hmm. Well, I love the notion of STEAM. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll add to that because of my background in design and my love of design, especially as it relates to every facet and every industry of our lives. Uh, we could be steamed. <laughs> so we have science, technology, engineering, <laughs> art, math, and design uh, to lead the way. Uh, what other ways do you support students? I know you mentioned where someone might step in and help with writing, or maybe there's a math component that needs help. Where where are other ways that you're supporting students that someone could take a note from? Well, I think, you know, we start with the teens as young as 14, and we have a summer art and design experience program where teenagers can come in free of charge to experience art and design classes. And this gives them a chance to explore whether or not they might want to do this thing called art and design, or it even focuses them on what they do want to do. And by giving them a summer art experience, and we also expanded it to Saturday art during the spring and fall semester, Students actually are acquiring the skills before they get to the academy, and they can even put a portfolio together if they wish as high school students in our free summer art and design program. And I would recommend that other schools do that, and if they want to focus on math and science, they can do so. 
That's great. Tell me a little bit about your recruiting strategies and how you find best fit students. And I know with no barriers, best fit may not be kind of a, a typical qualification, but how do you recruit and how do you find your way to the prospective students' hearts and minds? Well, recruiting now is really digital and we're doing a lot of digital outreach. Of course, we use Google, we use YouTube, we're on Instagram. Some of that's paid, some of it's organic, but that's been our focus. I mean, I still have a belief in outreach through television. I believe in the power of television and the, and the reach of television. Mm-hmm. I think radio also is still valid, uh, particularly probably in California where people are still in cars. But today we have to do it all. Yeah. We have to try to use all channels to reach people, to get our message across that these opportunities exist. I think the biggest mistake that people make, and I may be jumping the gun in one of your questions, is that of this sort of starving artist notion, which we have never subscribed to. We look around and we see art is everywhere. The cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the buildings we look at, the buildings we are inside, the interior architecture, the movies we watch that are constantly changing. I don't think that there's anything that we can actually think of, uh, including landscape design with the landscape, photography, video, music, acting. There's nothing that we don't participate in every single day that hasn't been touched by the hands of an artist. And those are all jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well said. Well said. We don't subscribe to a starving artist syndrome. Instead, (laughs) we subscribe to a successful artist syndrome. And I think that's a, that's a message that everyone should hear. And you're absolutely right. Art and design touches every facet of our culture, our societies, and of course, our jobs and our economies. So tell me a bit more than about uh, recruitment in terms of leaning into your values or your brand differentiators. How have you been able to carve out space and differentiate yourself from other programs that you might be competing with? I think the way what we do best is that we make sure that we have the best professional artists in the classroom. It's the person instructing that matters. It's not the piece of paper. It's, it's, it's not that. It's the person in the classroom. And to differentiate yourself from any school, it's the instruction and the instructor. And we focus very hard. Uh, I use the analogy of sports a lot. Football, for example, you know, they've got the best players, you know, that does, and, and they work as a team. And that's how they get to the Super Bowl. And they're constantly reevaluating their players all the time. And some players that were great at one point are, are no longer great um, for various and sundry reasons. Injury could be a reason. So I think that that vigilance on instructors in front of the classroom is important. And it's, uh, you can't rest on your laurels. Uh, with that. And I think equipment to support, uh, then artists have special environments and need special equipment. We've been lucky. We have a really robust online program, which I actually put in in 2001. 
over 20 years ago because I was worried at the time of earthquakes. My grandparents had been in the 1906 earthquake. So I wanted to make sure that students' education could continue in the event of an earthquake in San Francisco. So our online platform, we initially built as a proprietary system, and we've got whiteboards and drawing pens and Everything was geared to the artist with the artist in mind. And a lot of our students have taken advantage of our online program. Nice. Oh, that's great. Do you, thinking about the faculty and the artists as like one of the main differentiators, do you try to find a balance between adjunct and tenured as a way to, you know, always have the best talent? Or do you firmly believe one way or the other is best for a university? You know, I think for a professional art and design school, which is what we are, we have a very good balance. We do have a fair amount of adjunct because we are hiring people who are in the industry. If, you know, if I were running, uh, you know, for having an acting program, which we do have, you know, I want people like Brad Pitt to come in <laughs> and lecture and instruct. And, and Mr. Pitt can't be full time because Mr. Pitt's making movies all the time. So or directing. So I think it's important to have a a strong, large number of adjunct. But primarily the executive chairs of these programs are full-time. And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights, and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our Higher Education News Brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now, back to the discussion. So let's turn our our focus a little bit toward the curriculum itself, because I think this is going to touch upon our second topic, which is AI and technology and you know, really where uh, the world is, is taking us. So as a president, how do you ensure that the curriculum that the chairs are overseeing, how do you ensure that that stays relevant and aligned with some of these latest trends, including AI? We have two ways to do that. A, the professional faculty that are in the classrooms are very current in this subject. And secondly, we have advisory boards comprised of pros people who generally cannot spend the time to instruct, but can donate time to uh, advise. Mm -hmm. So we have robust advisory boards that inform us and look at the student work for its strengths and weaknesses and look at the curriculum to see where we may have gaps and where we have strengths. Do you think AI is a challenge or an opportunity for not only higher ed, but career creative professionals? I've embraced technology from the inception of my presidency, and I see it as a tool in the field of art and design. And it's a tool, if it is a tool that enables art and design students to better hone their craft and express their creativity, then I believe as a university, we'd be derelict for not teaching that. So I think with AI, it will take over white collar, some white collar jobs. I believe that, but there'll always be a need for the human component with AI because the human component will drive AI. I think of that could be considered a negative. However, the creative jobs, the ones that are non-factual, the ones that are 
that are designed to spark inspiration and create motivation to people uh, and not it's a non-repetitive job creatives are I think those uh, jobs will exist and be in higher demand uh, because those are the people that are going to use AI. AI is going to need those people to prompt it. If it hasn't been invented or discovered or created, AI can't imagine it. So I think the future for artists on the iterative process that AI provides, and it provides it quickly, and it provides a lot of the iterations, I think is valuable for the artist to inspire the artist. What might take days and weeks to come up with a hundred ideas, AI is going to come up with in 30 seconds. And then the artist will take those ideas and improve upon them, expand upon them, change them. Yeah, that's exactly where I land with that too. It's it's nice to hear your your perspective. I've, I've been reminding people that HI, <laughs> human intelligence, is never going to go away. And then HD, human direction, is also going to be increased, ultimately leading to the best AI <laughs> we've ever seen, which is not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. And I think that, you know, if uh, Michelangelo had people helping with the Sistine Chapel, many artists in the next uh, year and beyond are going to be leaning on AI as that, um, you know, that production artist to, to help generate ideas and help execute on some of the concepts the use of AI, have you seen any uh, interesting projects or interesting artifacts coming out of the university with AI? I'm just curious about that as well. Yes, we've had AI embedded in our curriculum for over a year, and we see it in advertising, the copywriting area. Mm-hmm. We see it in art direction and the actual commercials that are being created We're seeing our students in fashion design start implementing it with their fashion designs. Photographers are using it. And particularly our industrial designers, our car designers, and our product designers. They have it. They're using it. The game designers are using it. So we're seeing it in game design. And it's pretty well integrated into all those majors. And I think that, you know, we have over 120 programs, but those departments are really uh, taking it and running with it. And I've seen some really fascinating artwork that's come out of it. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the fact that you've listed so many industries, because I know that in terms of producing graduates who have gone on to make significant contributions in, you know, industry-wide, the art university has has really excelled in this area. Can you share maybe an example or two of, of a student who's made an impact? I can. And in fact, I wish I, I, I could show you the impact that they're making. Because <laughs> I think the pi- picture speaks volumes. We're seeing it. I'm see, I just saw some examples in car design and uh, footwear design, the iterative process where they're improving on the look of the shoe, let's say, for example, a tennis shoe. Um, Once again, the machine can't tell you whether that shoe's comfortable or whether it works. That's going to have to be with the artist to to do prototyping and uh, really testing it. But I've seen amazing things 
happen in advertising where they're coming up with amazing. Our last student, she took images and then she did copy and she used AI to advertise an electric motorcycle. And it was a video. And it was very powerful, very powerful. And I think she's probably going to get hired based on that work that she did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another aspect to AI, which we teach and which we have taught for many, many decades, is the collaborative experience. And a lot of artists, when they first come to us, aren't aware how collaborative art is, art and design. And you may have a painter that works alone in a studio, but everybody else, whether they're photographers, motion picture television people, designers, writers, they're all architects, interior designers, landscape architects, they're all working collaboratively. Animation, animators, the game designers, none of that's done by an individual. It's done in a team. And it's usually a team of diverse artists and designers because they all play a role. And that collaborative process is practice and you have to be taught how to do that. You have to be taught what your role is. And and then you have to work very hard to keep up with the team and the collaboration. And that's a skill. And we have many, many, many collaborative projects that tie into industry. So students are already getting contact with industry before they graduate. And this is helping them get employment. Yeah. It's helping them be seen. Yeah, that's great. That is, that's absolutely great. I, I love the, you know, the, the placements and the connections that a student can make with industry as part of the curriculum, part of the learning experience. The, uh, the notion of collaboration, too, I think touches on what we were just describing, where we're now learning to collaborate with AI, right? So it's, it's not only the other types of members or specialists as part of your team, but then also, you know, how does AI collaborate with that process? How does AI contribute and collaborate to the overall outcomes? Thinking of collaboration and success, what are some other skills or the qualities that you're looking for and and trying to develop in a student so that they do go on to succeed in the field of art and design? What What are those key skills? Well, I think that, you know, we talked about the the drawing and the design skills, color, structure and form, technical skills, computer skills, AI skills. But what we really focus on is failure and learning to accept failure and keep failing and then keep redoing, keep failing, keep redoing your work. And that builds a lot of metal. And that's what the marketplace is going to ask of you. So don't be frightened of failure. Everybody fails. The more you fail, the better you're getting. And we provide a safe environment for them to fail. And we'd rather they fail at school than in the job market where it could cost them their job. So it's, I think failure is what we teach them. We have a critique method an objectively based critique method. We're an objectively based art school where we're teaching them the facts and they're drawing their conclusions. And through critique, we're showing them where their work can be better every, every project. And then we're asking them to go back and make it better. So that process of performance on the part of the student is what 
I feel makes them better over time. That's great. Learning how to fail forward is a, is a skill that, um, yeah, every artist needs, I would say every individual needs to learn and embrace and, and also the ability to provide constructive feedback in the form of uh, objective critique is also, yeah, one of life's greatest skills, I would say. Uh, so, so I love that. And it also goes back, I think, to the traditions that you're honoring, right? I, I have in, in the design courses that I teach, I, I have this lecture all about how design is pretty damn old, <laughs> meaning that the, the theories of art and color and balance and visual hierarchy, like those things will, will never go away. They work for a reason. And those are the, some of the facts and conclusions that I think that you're, you're drawing from in that objective critique process. That's correct. Just to uh, kind of wrap up and, and close here, what role do you see branding? I know you touched upon advertising, but what role do you think branding and marketing play in, in today's higher education landscape? I think they're very important. And I think universities, education is customer service. And all schools benefit by and and do market themselves, whether they know it or not. They're doing it through their sports teams. So I I think branding to the customer, the needs of the customer, and we're focused very heavily on, it starts here at the Academy of Art University for your art and design career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I agree. I think that... um marketing and branding is, is key and, and leaning into those differentiators, which I think is part of the reason I asked you about that. If, if a university is struggling to carve out space within the market, do you have any like secret tips or, or tactics or a direction that they should head, a, a place where they should look for those differentiators? AI. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that they need to look closer uh, to home mm-hmm. in your own backyard and see where your strengths are. I think a lot of schools have done remarkably well in promoting themselves. And I'm always surprised how they promote themselves so well, but I can't actually see that they are the richest schools or the schools in the best, you know, best cities or whatever, best weather, whatever we would think uh, might be do it. But they look at their own unique value proposition, and then they just go laser tight on it, and they push, push, push. And I think that you have to look inward for that, and then not deviate from that. This is who we are. We're not all things to all people. This is what we do. A lot of times in education, especially art education, is school's follow each other where I think they should be more individualized. Yeah. I think that's interesting how especially artists who view themselves creative, the schools can all look the same when they shouldn't. There should be choice in education for the uh, American population. Yeah. Well, you give me the impression that you're not afraid to take chances and you're not afraid to carve out that unique identity at the risk of maybe not being all things to all people. Is that is that accurate? Yes. <laughs> and and back to your to your earlier answer about what skills an artist or an individual might need. I think at the institutional level, what you're what you're advocating for in terms of branding 
is don't be afraid to take those chances. Don't be afraid to fail forward (laughs) and redo and iterate and grow and learn at the institutional level. And certainly don't be afraid and or build into your process that objective critique process that we learn as as artists as part of your your own methodology again at the institutional level. That's right. It's it's a it's a life learning lesson. The future for artists and designers is robust because art and design is woven into the fabric of our society, and that's based on looking around and seeing that everything that we see has been touched by the hands of an artist. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Stevens, thank you for this time. You have the ear of fellow presidents, the ear of deans and vice provosts. Any any final words, any kind of marching order or final thought? Be brave. It's a brave new world. Be brave. I do believe that it's very important that we reach all segments of the American population and give them an opportunity to have access to higher education and and to not let their past influence their and predict their future because they're still young and it's too early to write off an 18-year-old. We'll just let those words linger as we take ourselves out. Thank you again for your time, Dr. Stevens. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this time with you today. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast. For more Higher Ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com. Thank you.